This is Fine Rambles, number 67. So I recently listened to Naval Ravi Kant, I think is his name, on Joe Rogan. And I was pretty skeptical going in. I sort of had thought of him as this kind of, I don't know, sort of snake oil salesman who was, you know, very self-promotional and a little glib. A lot like a lot of the people you see on Twitter who are trying to create this, you know, personal lifestyle brand. But I have to say for all that, I really was pretty impressed by the conversation he had with Joe and a lot of the relatively straightforward, sensible ideas that that he put forth. And it's funny, you know, I love listening to people who disagree with me because that helps me get my thoughts in order. But I also, I think like most people, like to listen to people who agree with me because often they can come up with arguments for my side that I haven't heard of before. But when I hear someone give an argument for something I already believe and the argument is pretty weak or it's one-sided, it makes me hesitant. It makes me say, you know, is that really the best that someone who is very articulate and bright and well-read can come up with. And if that's the best they can do, you know, maybe the argument that I support isn't as strong as I believed. And the example that I want to use is, is status. So status is just, for me, this endlessly fascinating idea. And Naval kind of gave the very straightforward, down-the-fairway pitch against the pursuit of status. It's a zero-sum game, and it's the one thing in the world that really costs money. (laughs) Almost everything else in life you can do pretty cheaply, even children, but status is going to drain your bank account dry. It's a very costly signal, right? Because it is zero-sum, and because it's so competitive that anything that you do, other people will have to one-up. It's kind of like that idea of everyone standing up at the baseball game to get a better look. The result is everyone's uncomfortable and no one has a better view. And so, you know, he gave that argument, and I think that's totally true. But, (laughs) the fulcrum of the but, there is another side to status. And I think it's really important that if we tell people to reject the game of status that we need to be very careful to be honest about what else status offers other than this, you know, unending rat race. Status is pretty well known at this point, I think. I think, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. It's pretty well known that sexual selection of men occurs largely through status. And so if you want to have the best wife that that you can, if you want to attract the best woman that you can, status is kind of something you're going to have to get. You're not going to marry this like beautiful, intellectual, you know, vivacious woman if you if there is not a single status hierarchy that you are at the top of or are at least trying to get to the top of. If you simply are, if you're simply sort of the classic guy in the basement playing video games, you're not going to do very well in the dating scene. And there's another factor. 
One of the biggest factors that impacts the amount of serotonin in your brain is whether you think other people think that you are high status, right? So it's not whether you are high status, it's whether you think other people think you're high status. Whenever we experience boosts in our status, right? Whenever our status increases, our brain gets flooded with serotonin. And as a result, we become more confident, we become more relaxed, more cooperative, more social. And that's a virtuous circle, right? A virtuous cycle, virtuous circle, because those things make us more attractive and more likely to succeed, and therefore more likely to get more status, and therefore more serotonin. And the, you know, the opposite's true. If you just take someone and just beat them down and just deprive them of status and therefore deprive them of serotonin, they're going to become very depressed and lonely and fearful and hesitant and antisocial. And that's a vicious cycle. They don't interact well with others and therefore their status gets worse and worse and worse. So again, good with the bad. It's It is a zero-sum race, but it's a part of playing sort of the main game of life, which is, you know, mating and being social. And so you have to take the good with the bad. And there's some good news. Back in the day, there were only a couple different hierarchies. But in a civilization as complex as we have today, there are literally millions of hierarchies. And I think this is just the most wonderful thing ever because it allows everyone to find some hierarchy or some mountain or some pursuit or some hobby that they are really passionate about and that they can pursue based on that passion. And therefore, they can achieve status within that niche pursuit without, I guess, without having to to go climb the same mountain as everyone else. And that's a wonderful thing because it means more people can become high status. And here's something even cooler, I think. You could have a group of people who are all pursuing different hierarchies and they can cooperate together and be essentially, they can be alternatively the master and the pupil. Now, what do I mean by that? So let's say you had four friends who like to do a variety of activities together. And one of the things they like to do is, you know, they like to f- fix they like to fix up each other's homes. They like to DIY. There's one of the friends who's really good at this. He's he's been a, a, a contractor, he knows carpentry, he knows wiring, he knows how to paint. And the other three guys are kind of weekend warriors. Well, in that context, they're going to look up to that that friend who knows what he's doing, and he's going to be the boss. They will follow his instructions, and he will give orders. They will form a functioning hierarchy. And then let's say they do that on the weekends, and then they go play golf or something on Tuesdays. And there's one guy, a different guy, who's a really good golfer. That's where he puts his passion and his time and his energy. So there he's the top dog. When they have a bad shot, they ask him for advice. They defer to him in terms of maybe what club to use or how to approach a certain hole. When they have questions, they ask him for advice. And then on Thursday, maybe the golfer gets sick. 
and he goes to see the third friend, who's a doctor. And now the hierarchy is completely reversed again. Two days ago, this guy was giving his friend orders about how to hold his club, and now he's listening to the doctor with a lot of respect, and he is deferring to the knowledge and the experience of his friend. And then, you know, you can sort of, I'm making this up as I go, but you can sort of imagine a fourth scenario where maybe, you know, the fourth friend is really good at something else. And when they do that activity, they defer to him. And the result is that all four of them have high status at the same time, even within their group. They just have it in a very domain-specific way. And again, I think this is just a wonderful, wonderful thing because it shows people how to both lead and to follow, lead and follow. And there's really something to that, I think. There's really something to learning both roles. There's a lot of negative publicity today about hierarchies, but I think that both roles are really important to learn. Let's say you're the top of the hierarchy. You have certain responsibilities. You owe the people below you mentorship. You owe them protection. And you owe them sort of this sort of joshing friendship, which is, you know, I know you're not great at this yet, ba ba ba, but you're getting better. I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to make fun of you a little bit in a nice way. And as a result, you're going to feel good and you're going to work hard and you're going to get better. And then if you're lower in the hierarchy, you owe the top dog or the boss or the king your own brand of loyalty, in a sense, real loyalty and obedience, because you want to get better, because you want the whole collective to function better. And therefore, you do what the guy who knows what he's talking about says. You follow his instructions. You follow his orders. You watch him. You learn from him. You obey him. And as a result, Everything works better, and you get stronger in that domain yourself. And just in my own experience, this is absolutely true. In my life, I've usually been at the bottom of the hierarchy, whether it's in sports or at work or whatever. I'm usually the guy who is not necessarily the worst, but maybe he's the newest or the least experienced or whatever. And as that guy, I've had very good mentors and very bad mentors. And the good mentors really enable this sort of relationship, where they lead through strength, where they're tolerant of weakness and failure, but they're always pushing you to get better. And as a result, they bring out the best in you. They bring out the part of me that wants to get better. So that's a functioning hierarchy. And I think instinctively, we don't like to see hierarchies that are broken. We don't like to see people punching down. When we see a big man beating up a little woman, or we see a bully pushing around a little kid, or we see, or we see an employer humiliating an employee in public, or we see you know, a dog owner yanking their dog around, we get upset. We instinctively get upset, and we instinctively sympathize with the little guy. And I think, I think that sympathy is good. But I want to end on a kind of controversial note, just because this is something I've been thinking about. And I would love to get some pushback. And I know this idea is, a, is somewhat ludicrous, but sometimes, you know, I find it helpful to discuss ludicrous ideas. We don't like to see people punching down, but 
what if there is a place for bullying? What if bullying can be a good thing? You know, there's this great series of kids' books called So You Want to Be a Wizard. And in one of the books, a great white shark explains his moral philosophy and tries to justify what he does, which is, you know, basically swim around the ocean and kill things and eat them. And he was saying, I am attracted to weakness, and then I put it out of its misery. If you are sick, if you are injured, if you are dying, I come and I put you out of your misery, and in the process, I keep the whole ocean clean. And I think there's an argument somewhat similar that a bully could make. I think bullies, at some level, are offended by weakness. And so they point it out. And sometimes they point it out very badly, very over the top. But sometimes, well, here's an example. If you are approached by a con artist to play, you know, three-card Monte or something like that on the streets of New York, you should get down on your goddamn knees and thank that con man. You shouldn't play the game. You should thank him because he has identified you as a sucker. And the information conveyed in that is enormous. Here is someone who's very experienced in seeing suckers, and at a glance, he could tell you were a sucker. You're a sucker. You had better go figure out why you're a sucker and figure out how to stop being a sucker, because the next guy who takes advantage of you as a sucker won't be so obvious. And so we should thank the people who point out our weaknesses, because they're the ones who will enable us to get stronger. And at some level, I think bullying is the same way. If a bully picks on a kid who's small and weak, that kid has to get it through his head that he is weak and that he needs to get stronger in some way. And that's not necessarily physical. It could be as simple as learning how to stand up for himself without running for the teacher. That's the worst thing. Again, you know, here's here's something else I thought of. Remember in The Karate Kid when... You have uh, Daniel, who's the protagonist, and then I think it's Johnny, I forget his last name, Johnny, who is, you know, the blonde asshole bully. And Johnny picks on Daniel, and that's what gets Daniel to learn karate. If it wasn't for Johnny, would Daniel have ever learned karate? If it wasn't for Johnny, would Daniel have ever gotten strong? And I think in some sense, that's the role of the bully. He sort of points at the weakness and identifies it. And then the weak person should say, thank you. Thank you for pointing out that I am weak. I am going to go do something about that. Anyways, that's (laughs) on that note. That's all I got. I'll catch you next week.